0: Good morning. Please take out a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you're using one of the pew bibles in the pew next to you, you can find our passage on page 950 this morning, James 1 verses 19 through 21. Please follow along as I read the word of God. Father, we come to you this morning, confess that we often are not quick to hear, we are not often slow to speak, and we are not often slow to anger. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us, help us to give, uh, receive your word, help us to know what it says and apply it. It's only through the power of your spirit that we can receive, understand, and apply these things. So, Lord, we pray that you would not let us walk out of these doors this morning without being changed by what you have said. We pray for your power among us. Guard me from error and guide us in truth for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, it's been a few months since our last time in James together. So, we need to spend a few moments. Uh, just reviewing what's been said and why in in the context of this passage so we can get a right understanding of what James is saying here this morning. James is writing this letter to a group of believers who are scattered and suffering due to their faith in Christ. As persecution came in the early church, um, believers were forced out of their jobs, out of their homes, out of where they lived, and into new areas new regions, and as they find themselves settling into their new lives, they also find with that temptations, temptations to possibly be just a little less vocal about Christ, temptations to blend in just a little better so they don't suffer again, temptations to be like the world around them so their trials won't be so severe the next time. And James, seeing that the church is is scattered and suffering and succumbing to worldliness, sends this letter, the book of James, to his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to correct their wandering. He calls them back from their worldliness into a life of submission to the word of God that honors Christ. His main thought in this book is to stop compromising Stop being like the world. Stop being worldly. And since it was their trials that they're experiencing that gave them the temptation to compromise in their, in their walk, James needs to start the book, this letter, by clarifying what the purpose of the trials are in a believer's life. And that's exactly where he starts back in verse 2. He gives a right understanding of the trials and how to live under them. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. These are good for you. These are producing good things in you, and you should be joyful under them. Hold up under them so they can accomplish that good work. See, James tells us that trials are normal and sanctifying things that the Lord brings into our lives for our good so that we would be more like Christ and we would bear more fruit. And then in the passage that we saw last time. It was all about how to rightly live when we fail those trials. When we succumb to temptations. We saw that ultimately the failure is, is ours and not God's. During our temptations when we fail it is our fault. Because we know this because that the trials that God brings are good gifts from God. This is clear because God is good by nature. And God only gives good things to his children. Then the trials that he brings and he allows in a believer's life must be for our good. So James ends that last section in verse 18 by showing that God has proven, indeed, that he gives good things to his children because he's already given us the best things in Christ through his word. His logic is that if God has already given us the greatest thing, our salvation, how will he withhold lesser things? How will he not give us anything but good things in our life when he has already brought us forth by the word of truth? And now, as we come to verses 19 through 21 this morning, we have to understand that James is making a bit of a transition from trials. He's transitioning from addressing the trials and their purpose in our lives towards that main point of his book, this letter, Stop Compromising with Worldliness. Stop being like the world. And he starts that theme at the root of the problem, how we receive the word of God, how we receive it and respond to it in our lives. You see, it doesn't matter what James says about specific areas of compromise in the church or in the believer's life until he's addressed that root issue, that problem of how we receive and respond rightly to the word of God. So he spends the rest, majority of the rest of his letter addressing specific areas, one after another, specific areas of compromise in the church But unless he lays the foundation of rightly receiving the word that he does here, every other call to change in our lives would be merely external because it'll be a call before a behavior change, not a heart change. So having ended the last section, speaking about the word of God and its power in our lives, he now focuses on how we are to receive the word in this passage we'll look at this morning. Now, I know That when you first look at this page, this this passage, it doesn't jump off the page to you that this is what this passage is about. And the paragraph breaks in our English Bibles, the translations here, don't help us too much with that understanding either. Because it kind of makes it seem like James is starting a new idea here about not being mad. But let me show you three reasons why we must conclude that this passage this morning that we're looking at, verses 19 through 21... Is about receiving the Word. Three reasons, let me give you real quick, why we have to see that the true interpretation of this passage is about receiving the Word of God. First, if you look back at verse 18 with me for a moment, you notice the last thing that James says was about the Word of God. He says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. Second reason, The very next section in verse 22, look with me, picks up the same exact theme with the words, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So last section was about the word, next section's about the word, and guess what? This section's about the word because if you look, third point, look at verse 21 in our passage this morning, he says, Verse 21, therefore, now I want you guys all to realize that that word therefore means that verse 21 is connected to the previous sentence of verse 19 and 20. It's the same thought, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and what? Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So his last point in verse 18 was about the word. His next point starting in verse 22 is about the word. And everything in verses 19 through 21 is about the word and how we are to receive it. The word and how we are to receive it. So here's a roadmap of our passage for this morning. We're going to see that James shows us three foundations for rightly receiving God's word. And then we'll end with a couple of applications. Three foundations for receiving God's word rightly. So our outline, point number one, receive it reverently. Point number two, receive it in purity. And point number three, receive it with humility. So let's get into this passage. Foundation number one, to rightly receive the word, you must receive it reverently, reverently. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, that's sort of a dramatic way to start a sentence. Know this. And if you're like me, you kind of read that and you kind of say to yourself, okay, James, well, I get that, but know what? Know what? What are you talking about here? And the punctuation in the ESV translation make it seems like the, the, what he's telling us to know is what comes next. That hear slow to anger, slow to speak. Uh, and, and, but we have to remember that the punctuation here in our English translations, wasn't in the original. It's not inspired. It's something that's added for uh, clarification, hopefully. The Greek here seems to imply that there's a transition from the command to know something and this following list of things to do, this hearing and speaking. And it's a little bit complicated, but simply put, I think the best way to translate this verse is the way the New American Standard Version captures it. If you had that in front of you, it would say this, know this, my beloved brothers, exclamation mark. But let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You see, in the Greek, there's that conjunction, but, that lets you know that there's a new thought that starts there that's connected to the previous command. It's not what James wants us to know. It's what he wants us to do about what we're to know. We are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger because of something that we're supposed to know already. That's his point. So James starts, verse 19, very emphatically, know this, referring to his last thoughts from verse 18. Essentially, he's saying, take note of this, pay attention to what I just said, accept it because it's true. Have those truths firmly established in your mind as fact. So we have to ask ourselves, what are these truths that James is commanding us to know and have established in our minds? Well, let's look back at verse 18 again. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind, a kind of first fruit of his creatures. You see, James wants us have established in our minds that it's through the word of truth that God saved us. It's through the word that he has made us new creation, and not just any new creation. It's through the word that God has made us the first fruits of his creatures. We, brothers and sisters, are now in Christ, God's greatest creation through the power of his word through the power of his word. We who have followed Christ know what it's like to be changed by the word of God and to be made new. We've tasted God's goodness through the gospel, and we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. And James wants us to have those truths firmly established in our minds, that it's God's power working through his word that has changed us. So why does he want us to know this? Why does he want us to focus on this? Because remember the main point of his book. He wants the church to turn away from the things of the world and turn back to a sincere faith in Christ. And the only way to do that is for God's word to work in the hearts of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Since we already know that God can change us through the power of his word, we should have that firmly established in our minds, James says. It's through God's word in our heart that God changes us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his point. Since it's so powerful that it can make us new creations, we should continue to let that word shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. And this is exactly what our Lord prayed in what's referred to as the high priestly prayer in James 17, verse 17, Christ says, praise, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So brothers and sisters, know this. Know this. God's word is truth. And God will continue sanctifying us through that truth, his word. And since God's word is so powerful, We need to let it have as much influence and effect in our lives and our hearts as possible. Which is exactly why James gives us these three rapid fire commands in the next section of this verse. He says three things that we must do if we're going to allow the word to continue to accomplish God's work in our life. You must be quick to hear. You must be slow to speak and you must be slow to anger. In other words, be reverent. Be reverent in how you receive the word. Treat it as the very words of God Almighty himself and guard yourself in how you receive it. Let's look at each of these three commands one after another. First he says, be quick to hear. Quick to hear. And this should kind of, I don't know, seem obvious to us. We can't possibly know what God is saying unless, unless we hear him speak. It's, it's like a high school student that's you know, sitting there doodling in class or, or maybe has headphones on when his teacher is speaking. There's no way they can possibly know what their teacher is saying. There's no way they can master the material. There's no way they will pass the test. How could they? And the same is true for our walks as Christians, We cannot possibly know how to please God and rightly do what he commands if we don't hear his word. We can't receive the word unless we hear it. It can't change our hearts if it never gets past our ears, brothers and sisters. So we must be attentive to it. This is a command for us to put ourselves regularly and consistently under the word, read it, listen to it, hear it taught and preached faithfully on a regular basis. So when you have a particular blessing, search the scriptures for how to praise and express thankfulness to God. When you're troubled, turn to God's word for encouragement, comfort, and strength. Search the scriptures for how God has commanded you to be pure and holy in your life on how to live a blameless life before him. See, this command forces you to ask yourselves, do you seize every opportunity to sit under the teaching of the word and have it change your life? My encouragement for each of us here, is to periodically, uh, periodically question if you're hungering and thirsting for the word rightly. Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 1, my delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law I meditate day and night. But this isn't all that James says about our relationship to the word in this passage. He says we're also to be slow to speak, slow to speak. And this almost seems like a companion to the last thought. You can't hear what anyone else is saying if you're constantly talking. We've all been in conversations like that that are one-sided. You can't get a word in and you're just kind of standing there wondering why the person's talking to you in the first place because they don't want to hear anything you have to say. So likewise, when we're sitting under the teaching, preaching, and reading of Scripture, we should be slow with our speech slow with our words. We should restrain our thoughts so that we don't interrupt with what God is trying to teach us in his word. And we've all been there. We're doing our devotion time and we read through the passage and we get to the end of the chapter and we realize suddenly, like, I don't remember anything I just read. My, my thoughts wandered, text message came in on my phone, something happened and I don't remember anything that God's word said And that time, I got nothing out of. Or this might happen during a sermon. When you're thinking about your lunch plans. Or maybe your work tomorrow. A project that's due. A chore that's at home. Or maybe... You get a message on your phone and you just check it to see what's going on. You see, this is so crucial in our lives, brothers and sisters. We must restrain the way we think and speak so that we can hear what God is saying in his word. This takes diligence. This takes effort. But I think what James probably has in mind here is when we disagree with what we hear in the word. Not just speaking over it, but when we disagree with what we hear in the word. Let's remember again our context in this passage. During the last section, back in, way back in verse 13, James told us, he says, let no one say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. There's a temptation that that person is in and they immediately accuse God It's God's fault that they failed. They complain against God and instead of listening to what he has to say about the situation and the trial, they instantly speak up and accuse the Lord. So, when you're tempted strongly, what's your attitude? Do you guard your thoughts and humbly seek God? Or do you speak out against him during the situation, during the trial? Or when you hear a truth In God's word that you don't want to hear during a sermon or a Bible study, how do you respond? Do you immediately stop listening because you're justifying in your own mind with your own words, your thoughts, why you should be able to do what you want to do? Or even worse, do you lean over to the person next to you in the pew and complain to them about the preacher? Brothers and sisters, we must be slow to speak must be slow to speak against God's word and during faithful teaching and preaching of it, if we're ever going to be able to grow by that word, we must cultivate a heart that is slow to speak. Let us like Job. When he was confronted with God's word and God spoke to him, he says, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. He restrained himself from speaking when the Lord spoke hard things in his life. And brothers and sisters, if you don't restrain yourselves from speaking while God is speaking to you, you have no hope of learning what God has said and the blessing that comes from that. We must be slow to speak. Next, James commands us that we have to be slow to anger. Slow to anger, the third command here, be slow to anger. Now, anger is a, a natural and, and, and powerful emotion and it's nearly automatic sometimes. And, and even mature Christians struggle with this sin. Whenever something makes us suddenly unhappy or, or we feel that it threatens to harm us in some way, the, the temptation is just to immediately lash out against that thing. Now, We've all read this verse before, and, and, and we probably typically think that it's referring to that type of explosive anger. The kind that's loud and violent, something belligerent and in your face. And maybe we think that because the translations here sometimes have this written, be slow to wrath. But the word here, originally has the meaning of a, a deep resentment. It's, it's something that seethes and smolders under the surface. Unlike the wrath that lashes out at the thing in, that it's upset about, this kind of anger can go completely unnoticed by everyone else except God. So in our context, James is warning believers to not allow themselves, to not allow themselves to have this deep, festering dissatisfaction and anger towards the truths of God's word. Don't let yourselves resent God and his commands. When he says something you don't like about a sin that you cherish, don't get angry. And don't get angry at a brother that preaches or teaches it faithfully. And this happens all the time. We've all felt it at some point in our walk. Through his word, God says you can't have or do something that you want that's sinful. That's sinful and you instantly have this temptation to be upset and seethe inside, get angry towards God and his word, why not? Or maybe you know that God is calling you to submit an area of your life to him and it upsets you because you want something different. Or maybe you see clearly in God's word that he tells you to live a holy and pure life and not be like the culture around you And you immediately kick against his commands and try to justify in your own mind the worldliness and sin that you desire. And James tells us quite clearly, be slow to anger. Be cautious. Don't let yourself go there. Take control of your emotions and thoughts and remember who is speaking to you. This is the God who saved you through his word, so do not resent his commands in that word. Hear him and submit to him reverently. James ends this section by giving us a, a motivation. A motivation to live this way in verse 20. He says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now there is a type of anger that scripture refers to as a righteous anger. When we see God being blasphemed and, and, and dishonored and, and our instant reaction is to be Indignant about it. It should offend us. But when we allow our hearts to become angry at God Himself and to resent what He has said, it can never accomplish right. It can never accomplish God's good in our lives that He intends. Our anger does not produce God's righteousness. This doesn't mean that we're not going to be saved if we get angry. We know that James is talking to brothers and sisters, fellow Christians here, uh, he, because he, he addresses this to his beloved brothers. No, James means that this type of anger, this deep resentment in our heart and dissatisfaction that's directed at the truth of God's word does not produce practical righteousness. It doesn't produce holy living It can never lead to what God requires of you and his people. It can never lead to godly living and spiritual maturity, which is exactly what the word is supposed to do in our lives. And that's exactly what we as Christians should want. That's what we should desire is to have God honored and his purposes fulfilled in our lives. That's James' point. That's our motivation. So be quick to listen. Listen. Be slow to speak, be slow to anger, and have this desire to honor God, have his righteousness fulfilled. This is the epitome of reverence, brothers and sisters, where you value someone's uh, so highly, their opinion so highly, that reverently you keep silent and you listen to them. You carefully guard your responses to what they say because of the great worth and value that you place on that individual that's speaking to you. And when it comes to God's word, this is the thrice holy God of the entire universe himself who is speaking directly to you. So how much more should we revere his word and what he has said more than anything else? Listen how this is put in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let your words be few. So brothers and sisters, let us be reverent. In receiving the word. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak and be slow to anger. Foundation number one, James gives us. Receive the word reverently. Receive it reverently. Next, foundation number two. We're going to see in the first half of verse 21. This foundation, to rightly receive the word, James tells us, you must receive it in purity. Receive the word in purity. Verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Put it away. Put away the filthiness and the wickedness. Put it away. Cast it off. Lay it aside. Get rid of those things in your life. So what is he telling us to cast off and get rid of? Well, first he says wickedness. First thing here we're going to look at, this refers to an intentional evil, an intentional thing that we do. These are deliberate and purposeful sins, the kind the things that we subtly cherish and, and come back to over and over and over again. It's wickedness because we know it's wrong, but we still love to do it. And James says it's rampant. Rampant. This describes something that's an unrestrained growth. It's it's like a wart on your body. It's something that's growing on us and it's out of control. His point is to show that we need to remove these things from our lives by showing that that it's out of control. It's not just a little thing that we can try to convince ourselves that we have control of because we don't. It's rampant. Even a little bit of it is out of control. Because even a little bit of it corrupts our lives and reduces our desire for the word of God. Cast it off. Cast it off and put it away. Throw it away from you. That's what James says. Second, James says that we're to cast off filthiness. And this word originally in the, in the Greek referred to filthy garments of a beggar. Just Absolutely just covered in filth. And it refers to anything that's immoral and causes a defilement or impurity in our lives. Anything and everything that causes a defilement and an impurity in our lives. It's interesting that this particular word in the Greek is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Zechariah 3.3 3, where Satan is accusing uh, Joshua the high priest to God. And what is it that's Satan's accusation? That Joshua's garments are unclean. He's not fit for service as a high priest because he isn't living his life the way that God has told him to. He's not holy. His garments are filthy, is what we're told. He's filthy. He's defiled. And that's the perfect image for our sins. That's what they do in our life. They they make us unfit for service. Just like Joshua was unfit because he was unholy, as God commanded. Sin in our lives that we don't get rid of makes us unfit before God. So what does James say about this filthiness and wickedness? Cast it off. Throw it away. Lay it aside. Get rid of it. Listen to how Paul expresses this thought in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, he says, put off the old self. Put it off. Now, this isn't just a a casual taking off a piece a little bit here and there when it's comfortable or convenient for you. This is a a deliberate way of just throwing it away. You see it's filthy, get rid of it, throw it away, get rid of it immediately is his point. And it's interesting that in the Greek, the grammar here for this command of casting it away It's really clear that this is a command that has to come first before we can do the next command in the next section. We have to cast away the sins in our life and be pure before we can receive the word meekly. That's what James' point is. These things come between you and honoring the Lord. These things prevent you from receiving the word. Get rid of them. Don't treat them like they're your little pets that you can keep in a cage and feed you can't keep these things under control. You can't domesticate these things. These things, these sins, are not cute, fluffy little things that you can pet. They're sin. These are things that took, that Christ went to the cross for to take for us. And God's, God's word tells us quite clearly, we need to put these things to death. We need to kill them, get rid of them, mortify them, cast them away. Submit to the word, And repent of your sins. Point number two. James' second foundation for rightly receiving the word is to receive it in purity. Receive it in purity. So James has just said, cast these things off and lay aside our wickednesses. All these sinful behaviors and things that we do that, that keep the word from being effective in our life. Now, the imagery of of casting off happens a lot in the New Testament. We see it quite often. And usually when it's used, typically what we see right afterward is a command to put something on. Cast off and put on. Just like what we saw in Ephesians 4 with Paul, what he said a moment ago. Put off your old self, which is corrupt, and put on the new. Put on the new. And that's the typical order that we see of these commands in Scripture. But that's not what James does here. That's not what James does here. Here in James 1, he doesn't tell us we need to put something on. And I think the reason for that is that everything after these passages in chapter 1 are going to be one long series of things that James is going to tell us to conform our lives to in the word. Conform in many different ways. One after another of things to put on. And remember, he doesn't want it to be just an external thing. He wants this to be true heart change. So what does he tell us to do? Look back at verse 21 with me. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. So that's our point number three, receive with meekness or receive with humility is another way to translate it. Now, this receiving has the idea of receiving like you're you're getting a gift. It's something that you welcome and you accept. It's something that you want. James is saying this word, we need to receive it. And I love how John Piper says this when he's commenting on this passage. He says, quote, it's not receive like you receive a blow on the head. It's receive the way you receive a feast Receive the way that you receive a friend or the way that you receive a surgery. See, it's not always pleasant, but it is always good for you and it is always life-giving. That's how we receive the word every day. End quote. We're to receive it because it's always good. It's always good for us and it's always life-giving. But what is it? specifically, that we're to receive. What is it that's always so good for us and true? And we want to be careful here. It's obvious in this passage he's, he's speaking about the word. In verse 21, he even says, receive the implanted word. But I think he's focusing in on something a little bit more specific in this passage. And I want to flesh that out for you a little bit. Look how he describes this word in this passage and the ones around it. So if you look back in verse 18, he calls it the word of truth and says it's what saved us. The word of truth that saved us. says, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's the word of God that God saved us through. It's what God used to regenerate us when we first became Christians. That's the word here. And then if you look back at verse 21, at the end of the verse, he says, it's able to save your souls. And it's something that's implanted in us. It's like a seed when it's planted in the ground. And that that should really immediately bring to mind the parable of the sowers, where the seed fell on good ground and it produced fruit. It was implanted in that soil and it took root is the point. It's, it's something in us. So based on what James says here about the word in the surrounding passages and this one, I think the best interpretation of what this is is that James is commanding us to receive the truth of the gospel. James is commanding us to receive that word of truth that saved us and regenerated us. The truth that although all of us here are sinners because we break God's law and deserve righteous punishment for those sins. The truth that despite all of our evil ways, our rebellions, God has made a way for us in Christ to be with him and to be forgiven of those sins. The truth that Christ on the cross took our punishment So that we would never have to face the wrath of God that we deserve. That Christ took God's wrath in our place and rose from the dead on the third day. So that if we believe in him, we will rise in newness of life. The truth that every sinner that goes to Christ in faith and repents of their sin will be saved from that wrath to come there isn't a sinner in this room that is too vile for God to save. No one is too far gone. Not you and not even me. So for those of you here this morning that have never received Christ in faith, the point here is very simple. Repent and believe. Receive the gospel which is able to save your very soul. Look to Christ in faith and repent and believe the truth of the gospel. Believe it and be saved. It's not too late and you're not too far gone if you only believe and come to Christ. Now, I want you to notice, though, in this passage, James' command here is to believers. He's telling this command to those who have already received the word. It's already implanted. Those who've already been regenerated by this gospel, he's commanding believers to receive the gospel. Receive that which you first heard and believed, the truth that God used to save you through his word. Now, that might sound a little strange to hear as a believer might sound a little strange, and you might be asking yourself, why do I need to receive the gospel if I'm already saved? I already believed it. Well, to answer that question, you have to understand uh, that salvation in the Bible is spoken of in a few different ways. It's described as something that happened in our past when we first believed. It's when the word first became implanted in us and we first came to Christ and received him. And theologians refer to this as as justification, meaning that we've been made right with God. We've We've become just because we've received God's righteousness in Christ. And the gospel is what God used to do that work in us. God plants the gospel through the Holy Spirit then saves us by granting us faith. It's faith in that word. And this is what we usually think of when we consider salvation, something that's already happened to us. But salvation in the scriptures is also described as something that's happening in the present, ongoing to believers. Once we're saved, God uses the truth of the word as a constant resource in our lives and our heart for the Holy Spirit to continue to guide us and teach us. He uses those truths that we just spoke about to grow us in practical holiness. He uses the truth of his word to give us a desire to kill sin and to follow hard after Christ. This is what theologians refer to as sanctification. Meaning that we become more set apart for God's service throughout our lives. And what is the fundamental truth that God uses to to drive that sanctification? The truth that we're in Christ. That we who are once far from God have been brought near in Christ. We who are dead have been made alive. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. And so as a result of that, we desire to live lives that are worthy of our Father and of that great privilege we have in the gospel. You see, at its core, it's the truths of the gospel that God uses to drive our sanctification. It's the gospel that God uses to give us those desires and cause this growth. The truth that we're now not our own and we are one with God. So salvation we see in scripture is something that happened to us in, in the past when we first believed. It's also something that's happening to us ongoing right now in our sanctification. But Our salvation is also described as something that happens in the future. Something that happens in the future. See, God didn't bring us to Christ just to leave us in this world. God has promised to save us to the utmost. He will bring us through the end of this life and to himself. See, we're promised in his word that we will receive our reward, which is eternity with Christ Listen to how John says this in in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. Not like we are now, but we will be like Christ then. And this is what, again, theologians refer to as Glorification that ultimate consummation of our salvation when we are with Christ, we will be glorified with him and be made like him. And the Holy Spirit uses those same truths of the gospel throughout our life to be a constant resource to guide us, to keep us from falling, to lead us to the end of this life, this race of faith that we're in. It's the gospel. Yes, it's Christ in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's the truth of the gospel that the Spirit uses to accomplish these ends. So why? Why do believers need to accept the gospel that they've already received? Why do they need to receive it and welcome it ongoing? Because the gospel isn't only what God used once sometime in the past to save you and make you a new creation, and now you're good, you're done with it. No, you as a believer must continuously receive the, and welcome the gospel in your life because it's those same truths that you believed at first that God will continue to use to bring you to himself in eternal glory and with Christ. That's why James tells us to receive it. That's why we're to welcome it. So, brothers and sisters, we must receive this implanted word. We must welcome its power in our lives so it can accomplish its work in us, saving us to the utmost, sanctifying us, and bringing us ultimately to eternal glory with Christ Himself. But exactly how are we to receive and welcome this implanted word? How are we to welcome it into our lives with all of its power? I love how James says this, verse 21, we're to receive it with meekness, with meekness or with humility. You know, often when we hear the word meek, we think of possibly someone that's, you know, weak or cowardly, not strong enough to do something, but that's not what this word means at all. It means to have a mildness of your disposition, a gentleness of your spirit. You see, this isn't a weak person. This is a person that has the strength to control themselves in adversity. It's the quality of a strong person that's submissive instead of arrogant. And the best way I can describe this to you is by looking at Christ. Looking at Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, the words are going to magically appear up here in a second. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon me, or upon you, excuse me, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle and lowly. That word there, gentle, is the exact same root word for, for meekness in James 1:21. Christ says that he is meek and lowly in heart, he's humble. So if we want to know what it's like to receive in meekness and humility, we have to look at Christ. We have to look at Christ. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I know this is a familiar passage, but I want you to see this in your own copy of the Scriptures. Philippians 2, 5-8, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here it is, don't miss this. And being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how are we meek? How are we humble? When we're like Christ. When we humble ourselves in every affliction, every situation, every trial to the will of our Father and his word. Just like Christ did. No matter how hard the trial or the situation, we humble ourselves, meekly receive the word just like Christ did to the point of death, even death on a cross. So welcome and receive this implanted word with humility in obedience to what God commands in every aspect of your life. That is how we're to receive the gospel. That's how we're to receive it meekly and humbly, just as Christ so, allow the word to influence every part of your life. Let the gospel do its work. Humbly submit to it. And then we'll be assured of the promise that we read that our Lord gave us in Matthew 5 5 in the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Receive the implanted word with ne- meekness, brothers and sisters. Receive the gospel. With humility. So, just a couple of points in closing and application here. Some sermons are just hard. Some texts are hard truths that challenge us, and this text should challenge us this morning. These are hard truths, and we can look at this this passage, this text, this morning as a test of our faith. Remember, James is writing this letter to a church, to the churches that are scattered to leave the ways of the world and return to sincere faith. Live consistent with the word, the gospel. So you, when you look at this text, you can see this test of your faith and ask, is your life marked by worldliness or by receiving the word? You see, When the true disciples of God hear God's word, there's a deep affection for its truth and a strong desire in our hearts to obey it. There's this this hunger for the word deep down inside of us. So application point number one is to apply this test to our own lives by asking, what is your response to the truths revealed in God's word? Do you hear it? And listen to it? Do you purify yourself according to what what you read there? Do you receive it humbly? If the answer to those questions are a consistent no... Then I have to warn you this morning that you may not have true faith in Christ. You may not have a new heart that's able to love God's word. You may not have these new affections because you may not be saved. You may not have trusted truly in Christ's work on the cross for you. So Jesus tells us clearly in John fourteen twenty four: Whoever does not love my uh, sorry, whatever, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So if this is you, please, repent. Go to Christ. He stands ready to save every sinner that comes to him in faith. So come to Christ. And on the other hand, this test, if you do see God's grace in your life, that that you desire to listen to the word, and you receive it and respond to it, Praise God. Praise God for that. A question for you to ask yourselves in applying this text this morning is, in what areas of your life and your walk with Christ do you need to grow in this? Is there an area in your life that you've been avoiding submitting to Christ? Have you put away sins that you know that the Lord doesn't want you to have and he's calling you from? You take them out of your life? Are there areas of your life that maybe you're upset with God about? Something he said, something he's brought into your life, a trial, some hardship, something you're dissatisfied. Do you hold some resentment towards the Lord, what he's brought and what he said? Well, then James' words to you this morning are very timely. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Receive the word in purity and with humility. That's our first application for this morning. Apply this text as a test to your faith. And second, since it's New Year's Day and this sermon is all about receiving God's word, it may seem like a good time to encourage everyone here to uh, revitalize your Bible reading plans, return to it, and many of us here this morning do plan on reading through the Bible in this next year. Praise God for that, and I encourage that, and, and that we all read the Word regularly and consistently. We hear what God says and apply it to our lives, but but for my second application point this morning. I actually want to give a caution, a warning. Be careful not to fall into the temptation to think that we're supposed to do this in our own strength. That we just somehow need to check more boxes on our Bible reading plan. We just need to get through more of it. We need to hear more of it. Yes, brothers and sisters, we need to hear God's word consistently and regularly and apply it to our lives. And yes, it takes great effort to study the word and to apply it. But we have to realize that God is the one that gives us the energy to do it. And the Holy Spirit is the one that blesses that effort with understanding and changes our hearts to make us more like Christ. So yes, read your Bibles, receive the word, but be careful not to do it in your own effort. Before reading and hearing the word, pray. Pray. Pray that God would sanctify you through his word and give you a greater love for him through it. Pray that you would know him more as a result of your time with him and above and beyond everything else. Look to Christ. Look to Christ who is the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who in perfect humility submitted in perfect obedience to the Father in every trial and difficulty, even to the point of death on a cross fix your eyes on Christ and run this race of faith with endurance in his strength. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard truths and what you've said cuts us to our core. Father, we know we cannot do this in our own power, Only you can change the leper's spots. Only you can give us a new heart that desires to obey uh, obey your word. So Lord, we pray that you would start that in the lives of those who have, have not trusted in Christ this morning. That they would call out in faith and believe that you would grant newness of life to them, make them a new creation. And Lord, for those of us that have trusted you even for long seasons, We pray that you would grant us a renewed desire to know your word, to hear it in our lives and to obey it, to submit humbly to what you're calling us to, even when it's hard and painful. Lord, we know that you can do these things. So we pray that you would glorify yourself in your church and through your people for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.